Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Well, this morning we have the uh, privilege of examining and admiring one of the most uh, marvelous timepieces that was ever given to man. This timepiece, by the way, was presented to Daniel the prophet when he was 90 years of age, but I think it would be a mistake to think of it as one of those classic gold watches of sorts that you give somebody at retirement. Uh, that's not the case here. Daniel is far from retirement. But the watch that he receives, uh, it's not a classic kind of watch, it's a supernatural kind of watch. It's not made of gold, it's made of prophecy. Uh, it's not a timepiece that you use to tell the present with. It's an incredible timepiece to tell the future with. And it's so precise that anyone who would look at this timepiece for long would begin to feel that he or she is handling something that only God could have made. I think you're in for some excitement here this morning because we're going to look at a a piece of Scripture that literally exudes the supernatural. And even a child can understand it. It's Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. You know, of all the things about this timepiece, it's really the date that's on the dial of this timepiece that makes it so extraordinary. You see, this watch that was given to Daniel was given to him in the 6th century B.C. That's 600 years or so before the birth of Christ. And yet, that timepiece pinpoints to the day, the exact moment when the Jewish people should expect to receive their Messiah. The exact moment is found in this timepiece. In the 17th century, a book was published by a Jew who, because of his own study, had become converted to Christianity. And uh, in this particular book, in the preface of the book, he tells how he became a believer. Uh, as a young man, he was listening to a debate between a converted Jew to Christianity and a learned, knowledgeable uh, Jew concerning Jesus the Messiah. And they went back and forth in this debate. It was moderated by a, a very knowledgeable Jewish rabbi. And as they went back and forth in this debate, the Jewish convert to Christianity began to press the prophetic passage that we'll look at here in Daniel chapter 9. And as he began to explain and unwrap this incredible timepiece uh, for the audience there, and in particular the individual that he was debating, at the height of the debate, suddenly the Jewish rabbi jumped up and closed the debate with these words. He said, let us shut up our books, for if we go on examining this prophecy, we shall all become Christians. <laughs> well, that means it's a pretty powerful text, doesn't it? And if there's anything I wouldn't want to do this morning is to shut up our books. So what we're going to do is open the books to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to look at this amazing timepiece that was given to Daniel about the future of the nation of Israel. Probably one of the greatest prophetic statements apart maybe from Isaiah 53 that's found in all of Scripture. It's really a privilege for me to be able to present it to you 
this morning. Daniel chapter 9. Let's begin contextually just looking at verses 1 and 2. It says, In the year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. You'll remember Daniel lived in the time of the Babylonian Empire, but now we're at the end of that. The Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians, and so Daniel is living in the first part of that reign of this new king, this king Darius, who is a Persian king. It says in the first year of his reign, verse 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, another prophet that came before Daniel. And what did Jeremiah reveal many years before? That the prophet had given for uh, the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem 70 years. You know, one of the amazing things that strikes me right here at the first of this chapter is the fact that here's this prophet Daniel, a guy who God had spoken to in visions and dreams, and yet he didn't rely on visions and dreams only for his understanding of the Word of God. He did just what you and I did. He studied the Bible. And so as we open up this book, where is he? He's studying the Word of God, the written Word of God, by unraveling these scrolls of a prophet who came before him, the prophet Jeremiah. And what the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied, and Daniel took it with absolute confidence, is that the imprisonment of the nation of Israel now that they had been carried off into captivity, the whole nation was in Babylon, that that captivity, according to the prophet Jeremiah, as he had received from the word of the Lord, that that time period of captivity would be 70 years. Daniel had gone all the way through that 70-year captivity. We were right at the end of that 70-year captivity. And so Daniel is absolutely confident, though he is still imprisoned in Babylon, that he's about to see the release of His people. And he believes that without a doubt. Because Jeremiah had prophesied that, that it would only be 70 years. So he's expecting the release of his people. But in expecting the release of his people, a certain question comes to mind. And that is, to what? They're going to be released to what? What's going to happen to my people now? Uh, there was no word from the Lord on that as to whether they would go back and rebuild a city or rebuild the walls or rebuild the temple and become a great nation again. He had hoped for that. But the question is, what's going to happen now? And that leads him to verse 3. He then seeks the Lord in that regard. It says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I mean, we're talking about earnest prayer now to know what's going to happen to His people. And what follows in chapter 9 is probably one of the greatest prayers in all the Bible as Daniel seeks the Lord in this regard. Now, we won't go through that prayer. We covered that some weeks before. But in the midst of this prayer, uh, Daniel is interrupted. In fact, he doesn't even get to finish this prayer because in the midst of this prayer, God sends a messenger to tell him what is going to occur for the people of Israel. In fact, what he will be told is he will be given this watch, this timepiece that will tell what will happen for the nation Israel, not only from that time, but to the end of time. Let's look in verse 20 and pick it up there. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, 
While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. In other words, David, I mean, Daniel had been praying all day. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now what occurs in verses 24 through 27 is that then he goes on and gives to Daniel a supernatural watch. As Daniel was petitioning God, God gave him a present. This supernatural watch that tells the future of the nation of Israel, even to the end of time. Look at verse 24. He begins, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is a question when I read that, and that is, what does he mean by 70 weeks? He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. The word decreed means to cut out or to apportion. You know, like you would apportion land. To set it aside for a specific purpose. So Daniel is told, 70 weeks have been specifically cut out in which I will give my attention to the nation of Israel. Now, the first thing that might hit you is, I don't know what 70 weeks mean. I, I, I would assume, and I think assume rightly, that it refers to a period of time, though it's stated in an unusual way. I mean, going around and saying, I'll be back in 70 weeks is not necessarily a household term, is it? So we have to work with that a little bit. You know, in Hebrew, if you were reading this in Hebrew, the way it would say is 70 sevens have been cut out for your people. That's because the Jewish numbering system was based on the number seven. Not like us, whose numbering system is based more on a Roman idea of tens. You know, we go tens, twenties, thirties, or tens, hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, don't we? That's how we think of our numbering system. The Jew did not think of a numbering system on tens, but on sevens. Seven days in creation. Seven days in a week. Seven years till you reach the sabbatical year. Seven sevens of sabbatical years before you reach the year of Jubilee. The year, if you remember, the 50th year in the nation of Israel where after 49 years, seven sevens had occurred, then all the land rested for a year. And there was a celebration, the year of Jubilee. All debts were forgiven. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? All lands were returned to their original owners. Well, that may or may not be good, depending on how much you had at the time. But still, that was the law of Israel. It was based on the number seven. And now here, as this messenger gives to Daniel the time of Israel's future, he speaks using the number seven. Seventy sevens have been apportioned for the nation. You know, all scholars agree, and there's much evidence to prove this, that we don't have time to go through, but the sevens that are being spoken about here are in terms of years. Seven, seventy seven-year periods have been given to the nation of Israel in which God will specifically focus on them. Well, if you multiply, you math scholars, 70 times 7, you come up with how many years? 490 years have been given to the nation of Israel. 
in which God will specifically concentrate on them and work through them to accomplish His purposes. Now in verse 24, it goes on and tells you, tells you what purposes God intends to accomplish through the nation in this 490-year time period. Six things that He intends to accomplish. Read them with me. First of all, He says, these 77s have been given to you to finish the transgression. That's number one. To make an end of sin. To make atonement for iniquity. And then to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy. And then finally, to anoint the most holy place. Now, we'll come back to this later on, but maybe just for the sake of observation, would you notice that those six things fall very neatly into two general categories? The first has to do with sin. The first three have to do with sin, don't they? To make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, etc. The last three have to do with righteousness and holiness. Notice the last three, to usher in righteousness, to bring it in, to anoint the holy place. Those are the purposes that God intends to accomplish through this nation over a 490 year period. And now what follows in verses 25 through 27 is how those purposes will play themselves out in history. And so now he's going to tell us how these years unfold. And as we do this, we really walk on marvelous and holy ground. This is spectacular stuff that just gives me chills going through it, even last night. To see how God lays out a timetable that any person can examine if they want to look at it. And then they'll marvel and say, could it be that this is a supernatural book? And what Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 27 scream forth is, yes, it is a supernatural book. Well, let's read it. Verse 25. Here's what Daniel is to know. You are to know, Daniel, and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, until He comes. Now every Jew wanted to know when Messiah comes. But from the time of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah comes, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks. The city will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Well, let me test your understanding at this point. Seven weeks and 62 weeks are how many years? Well, the answer is, for, for those of you who are still struggling, 483 years. 483 years, and here are the two things that you need to see, the two bookends of that 483 year period there would be an issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. 483 years would pass and Messiah would come to the city. Bank on it, Daniel. Know it. Remember it. Well, Daniel is to know that uh, that's to take place. Now, in the biblical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we find three decrees to go back to Israel and rebuild it. Two of those decrees in those books, and remember, we went through the book of Nehemiah, so some of you might even recall some of those decrees that we looked at. But two of those decrees was to go back and to rebuild the temple. Now let me ask you, were those decrees to go back and rebuild the temple, would that satisfy what is said here in verse 25? No, it wouldn't, would it? 
Because what it says is, it's not a decree to rebuild the temple, yet they did go back and they rebuilt the temple and lived there in the open-walled area of Jerusalem for many years. But that doesn't satisfy what this text says. The text says the decree that is issued to go back and rebuild the city itself. And that decree is found in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. Now we won't turn and look at it, but in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah gives us a date. He says, in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, I was given a decree to go back and rebuild the city. And many of you remember as we went through that book of Nehemiah, how Nehemiah went back and rebuilt the walls and got the people to come together. It's a marvelous story of how they rebuilt the city. But that's very difficult from the book of Nehemiah to determine what that date is because what is the 20th year of Artaxerxes and the month of Nisan? Well, here's where secular historians are helpful to us. You know, Herodotus uh, was the father of modern history. Herodotus happened, by coincidence, to live during the Persian reign of Artaxerxes. He actually was there. He was a great historian. He liked his facts to be very specific, and he recorded those. And Herodotus records for us the date that Artaxerxes made this decree in terms that we would understand. And any person who's a history major can look this up, but Artaxerxes issued the decree in the month of April, 445 B.C., for the Jews to go back and to rebuild their city. So we have the exact date in order to do our calculations. Now let's do a little calculating. You, you might grab your uh, outline that you have there because I have a little summary sheet where you can add this up. Now the first thing that you'd want to do, and this is what I would like to do, is just take the year 445 B.C. and add 483 years to it. That seems very natural, doesn't it? And when you do that, you come out with the year 39 B.C. Now some of you are going to come up with 38, but remember when you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., you skip zero, so you pick up a year. So you'd come out 39 B.C. and you'd go, well, that, that seems kind of close to what I'd hope it would have been, but still leaves you a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? And that's because the year that, that we work off of for our years in dating, B.C. and A.D., are 365 a solar year. But the Jews didn't operate off of a solar year. They offered, uh, operated off of a lunar year. So their years were not 365 days long, but 360 days long. So we have to do a little recalculation. So scratch that top part, and let's recalculate by multiplying the 483 years times 360 days. Because those are Jewish years. And if you did that, just to help you, if you don't have a computer, it comes out 173,880 days. Alright, now we've got to turn around and make those days back into solar years. The way to do that is to divide 365 days into 173,880 days. Alright? And when you do that, you come up with 476 years with a few days left over. Alright, now let's go back and do what we were supposed to do at the beginning again using now a more accurate date. If you take 445 B.C. and add it to 476 years, you come out with a date 32 A.D. Does that sound familiar? Does, does it by any chance to anyone in here 
seem to pinpoint a particular personality. <laughs> now let me tell you, is that not incredible? That's not something that, 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 that is just for scholars. That's something that's quite easy to do once you know the Jewish year. It comes out 32 B.C. There are others who've done much more exacting calculations and come up with months and a few variances of days. But we're just going to stay with the general point. But still, it comes out and it shouts out, doesn't it? A tremendous truth! 32! Who came around 32 to the holy city on a donkey proclaiming himself to be the Prince, Messiah? You can hardly get away from the incredible chills of that moment. Certainly it was Jesus. You know, Jesus had a comment in regards to Daniel, kind of a veiled comment. If you could think that 483 years later after Artaxerxes issued his decree, that that was the exact day, and I personally believe it was the exact day that Jesus rode over the Mount of Olives in that, with that donkey and into the city that would receive Him as Messiah. At least for a day. And Jesus makes veiled reference to that in Luke 19. You might turn back to Luke 19. Because although they had this great triumphal entry with palm leaves and all that, just a few days later they crucified Him. And Jesus knew that would take place. He was prepared for that. But I want you to notice His statement as He thought about His people. Because you know there, were, there was a lot of interest in the first century A.D. about the coming of the Messiah. I think there were a number of Jews who had made some of these calculations and was expecting the Messiah. There was a lot of rumor that the Messiah was coming. And yet when He finally came, He didn't come like they wanted Him to be. So they killed Him. But notice what Jesus says as He rides into the city. Look at verse 41. And when He approached, He saw the city and He wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, those are the key words, if you had known in this day, you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank of before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another remember that later on in the message when they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation and that's why he cried because on that day as he rode over the hill an alarm clock should have been going off all over Israel and they should have been saying in one accord, this is the day! But instead, they kind of hit the snooze alarm and they missed it. And the result was tragedy for the nation of Israel. And yet there it is, spelled out, Hosanna! The King is here. Is that not an incredible prophecy? Does that not give you chills to think that this book given by a guy 2,500 years ago could make a prediction like that? This is indeed an amazing book. 
But now let's go on. Let's go back to Daniel. That's what he says. He gives us the first 69 weeks. Then we would expect him to finish out the 69 with the 70th. Remember, 77s have been given to Israel. We still have one week remaining. Notice in verse 26 he says, Then after the 62 and the 7 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now let me tell you what's strange about verse 26. You would expect verse 26 to go on and say, then in the 70th week, or in the 70th week, or after the 69 weeks, in this 70th week, you'd expect the 70th to follow the 69. But it doesn't say that. It just simply says after these 62 weeks, then these two great events will occur. People have, have, have been puzzled over that particular statement. But I think as you begin to sift through it and sort it down, what you begin to understand is, is that when Jesus came into the city as the Prince of Israel, and He came into Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and He presented Himself as the King of Israel, and yet was not accepted but rejected, at that moment, God reached down and stopped the timer on the clock at 69 weeks. It stopped. Because remember, the 70 weeks are where God focuses on Israel. But when Israel rejected her Messiah, that focus changed from Israel to who? The church. And we've been in the church age ever since. So the countdown went on hold at 69 weeks. Kind of like, you know, the, all the delays that are going on in the shuttle project. It's kind of like that. At 69 weeks, there was a delay. God put the timer on hold at 69 weeks. And then there were some events that would occur after those 69 weeks, but they wouldn't be a part of the 70th week. So let's look at the two great events that occur in this gap between the 69th and the 70th week. The first is this. After the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off. Now we know that the Messiah was cut off, don't we? Crucified. And it says, and the Messiah will have nothing. Literally in Hebrew it says, the Messiah will have no one. And of course that in itself is an amazing prophecy because when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, He had no one. Everyone fled. So the Messiah would be cut off. Then secondly, it says another great event would also take place even later. It said that the people of the prince who is to come will destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary. Well, right now, when Daniel prophesied this, there wasn't a sanctuary. It was in ruins. Years later, it would be rebuilt. Then years after that, Daniel says, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy it again and the city. Now, did that happen? Well, sure it did. See, the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, this great Roman world ruler that's still future to us. But the people of the prince who is to come means that they were Romans. Jesus Christ was crucified 33, 34 A.D. Then you've got in 70 A.D. a rebellion in the nation of Israel. The Romans were outraged. They sent one of their crack legions under the commander Titus. He came and he put up siege works around the city. Remember Luke 19? A bank around the city. He starved them out. He couldn't get in. He couldn't get his legions in, so he starved them out. And they said that they stacked bodies inside the city of Jerusalem like cords on wood, cords of wood. And they were reduced in the final few days to cannibalism. It was said 
uh, by Josephus, the Jewish historian, that women ate their own children to survive. Cannibalism broke out in the city. And finally, when the Romans came over the walls, they were so outraged with the Jewish resistance that they disobeyed their commanders and they burned the city. They weren't supposed to, but they burned the city to the ground. Now, these great stone columns that made up the temple, one of the reasons they didn't want to burn the city is because they wanted to loot all the treasure in the temple. But instead, the, the soldiers burned the city and all that gold and all that ornamentation melted and it melted down into the rocks and into the stone. And after everybody had settled down, the commanders, in order to get the loot of the city, they had the soldiers go back with crowbars and pry up every stone in the city to recapture that gold and silver. And so true to what Jesus said that we just read in Luke 19, not one stone was left upon another. The city was destroyed and the sanctuary was torn down. All this occurred after Israel's time clock stopped in this gap between the 69th and 70th week. And you know, the finger of God is still on that hold of that time clock. It stopped. It's been stopped for 2,000 years. But the question we need to ask as we finish up this passage is, well, what's going to start it again? And then that brings us to verse 27 because it tells us what will start it again. Notice in verse 27 it says, and He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Ah, there's our missing final week of seven years. Some He will make a covenant with Israel for one week, but in the middle of this week He will put a stop to the sacrifices and grain offerings, and on the wing of abomination will come the one who makes desolate. Now we'll pick that apart here in a moment. But first let's ask the question, who is the He who will make this firm covenant? Well, if you're a good English student, when you got a pronoun like that and you're not sure, what do you do? You go back to the nearest antecedent, don't you? Remember that in English? Some of you are going, antecedent? <laughs> What's an antecedent? <laughs> well, we'll go back to the nearest noun. Do you remember that? You go back to the nearest noun there and it's the prince who is to come. The he refers to this prince who is to come. Ah, you remember him? Daniel chapter 7, the little bighorn, that incredible, charismatic ruler that would rise out of the new revived Roman Empire that's yet future to us. That's the He who is to come. And that helps us because what that helps us then say is this. When this charismatic world ruler arises out of this revived Roman Empire that's yet future to us, and then he makes this firm covenant with Israel... When he makes the covenant, then God's hand is released and the clock begins to tick again for the final seven years. That's what's being presented here. Now why does he make a firm covenant with Israel? Well, evidently, the world conditions at that time will be of such a nature that Israel will feel the need to come under his protection in order to continue to maintain her identity and her safety. Now that may say something, by the way, about the United States. Because we're the primary protector of Israel. But it won't always be so. There will come a time where this shrewd people will realize that this country can no longer give that kind of protection. And it will turn at that moment to the most dominant empire of the world for safety. And that will be this European community that will then be the most dominating world empire the world has ever known. Israel will seek shelter in the safety of that power 
And Israel will make this firm covenant and it will last for seven years. You know, before I go on and pick the rest of the verse apart for us, I want you just to marvel with me for just a moment the incredible events that are hinted at in verse 27. Now just follow along. You might just look at verse 27. Let me just mention them. But these are incredible things when you think about this guy is writing in 540 B.C. First of all, Israel would have to become a nation again. Now they did become a nation shortly after this, but then they were destroyed as we talked about in 70 A.D. and ceased to be a nation. And then for 2,000 years remained a dispersed people. One of the greatest miracles that any person has ever realized in history is witnessing the nation of Israel coming together again in 1947. Any student of history, eyeballs pop out thinking about that. Because they would want to say there must be a God to see those Jews come back and repossess the land and declare themselves the state of Israel again. And yet that's hinted at here in this passage because if you'll notice, this great future world ruler makes a covenant with the many for one week and the many is clearly a reference to the nation, Israel. Secondly, the Jews must possess Jerusalem again because there are going to be sacrifices and all that going on in a temple. So they must have Jerusalem. Well, in 1967, in that miraculous six-day six war, Israel possessed for the first time Jerusalem again. They hadn't had it since Babylon came in in Daniel's day and destroyed the city. 2,500 years had gone by. And in 67, before our eyes, they possessed the city again. Thirdly, Israel must have a temple again. Notice that in the middle of this seven-year covenant between Israel and this great world empire, this world ruler comes in and puts a stop to their sacrifices. Well, you can't put a stop to sacrifices if there's no temple to sacrifice in. You know, if you look over in Israel today, one of the amazing things that is occurring right now, even as I speak, is there is a movement to rebuild the temple in Israel. This is not a statement that I'm making because I saw some TV evangelist make it because he heard some rumor. And then you find out it was all rumor. These are facts that have been given in magazines like Time and Newsweek. They can be documented. There is a temple institute now established in Israel at the Wailing Wall, just west of the Wailing Wall. They've created all the temple vestments for the priests to wear. They followed the Levitical descriptions and instructions of how to create those temple vestments for the priest. Temple instruments. They're in preparation to build their temple. Right now. In this day. David Solomon, who's one of the national historians in Israel, said, sooner or later, in a Time Magazine article, the temple will be built. Well, here's Daniel, 540 B.C., saying there's going to be a time where there's going to be this covenant made and this world ruler is going to stop the temple sacrifices. That's just marvelous information. Finally, it assumes in this passage too that there's going to be a rise of a, a world-dominating empire. There's going to be a confederation of nations that will be comprised out of the old Roman Empire that will come together under a charismatic dictator. Who would have thought 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that Europe, which prided itself in its nationalism and had wars over nationalism as who would be the greatest nation, 
would now be coming together in a Euro state before your eyes to perform a great empire that would know no boundaries, have the same currency, the same parliament, the same economy, a confederation of nations. Who would have ever thought that? Who would have thought any of these things, any of these things, just 100 years ago, 75 years ago? Who would have thought these things? No one. Yet Daniel not only thinks them, he organizes them here in verse 27 and says, this is how the end will come. Now let's look at that end. He says, and he will make a firm covenant, that is this world ruler with Israel for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifices. All of a sudden, he's going to break his covenant. And we learn in Daniel chapter 7, the reason he breaks his covenant is because this world ruler is the ultimate new ager. And he's going to want to do what every man or woman, apart from Christ, wants people to do, and that is worship them. And yet now he'll have the power to pull it off. And so he'll want Israel to put away their religious system and worship Him as God. And it'll create all kind of controversy and calamity and conflict in the nation of Israel. The whole nation will be disturbed and will want to rebel against that kind of command. And then comes in a very unique figure. Notice it says, and on the wing of abominations. E.J. Young, the great... Presbyterian theologian said, wing means height. At the height of this abomination where Israel is being asked to worship a man will come one who makes desolate. That one who makes desolate will be the subject of the message next Sunday. But let me tell you in advance, it's Antichrist. Because Antichrist comes and he then takes the image of the beast, this world ruler, and he goes into the Holy of Holies of the temple of Israel that's now been built, and he says, you've got to worship the beast. And all hell breaks loose for the final three and a half years between Israel and this nation, this great empire, and its world ruler. That's what Daniel's telling us. One who makes desolate comes at the height of this abomination. But then notice, there's a finish to this Antichrist and this world ruler because it says that after that comes a complete destruction of them. A destruction that is decreed and it will be poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now who is that? And what is that? Well, if you'll remember with me back in Daniel chapter 7, in fact you might just turn back there, it tells us who that is and what that is. Daniel chapter 7, you might look at verse 26. It says at the height of this terror that's been poured out. That's what the word desolate means, by the way. At the height of this terror with this terrorist and his great world ruler, that the court, it says in verse 26, it's a heavenly court because that's the vision that was given in Daniel chapter 7. A heavenly court will sit for judgment and the dominion of this world ruler will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. Remember when Jesus was cut off? Was cut off back in verse 25? He accomplished the first three purposes of that 70 week period. He accomplished making an end to iniquity, didn't He? 
He put a stop to iniquity. He made atonement for sin. He accomplished the first three things of those three purposes of the 70th week. But here at the end of verse 27, when this destruction is poured out on Antichrist and the world ruler, and God brings His kingdom to earth to end time, at that moment, He accomplishes the last three purposes of the 70th week, doesn't He? Look back in verse 24. He brings in what? Everlasting righteousness. He seals up vision and prophecy. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, when the perfect comes, the partial is done away with. When the perfect, that is Jesus, comes, prophecy, the partial, is no longer needed. So prophecy is ended. And then the holy place, that is the holy city of Jerusalem, is anointed because of the presence of Jesus the Messiah received on earth as the King of the universe. And thus, the timepiece winds to an end. 490 years, 77s, are decreed for the nation of Israel. Now let me stop at that point and say a word to you. Did you know that God has put you on a biological clock with sevens? You might just look at Psalm 90 just for a moment, but in Psalm 90, it tells us that your body operates on sevens too. Notice in verse 10, it says, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. And then look at verse 12. Moses prays, So teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Every person in here no matter how much you jog, no matter how, what kind of foods that you eat, no matter how well you take care of yourself, even if you determine that at the end of your life you're going to freeze dry your body, I just want you to know you've got about 70 years. And if a few of us are lucky, 80. That's it. And that's our biological clock. And did you know in those 70 years, it's been given to us to accomplish two purposes. The same two purposes that generally the Messiah accomplished by coming to earth the first time and the second time. And that is these two things. Number one, that you make an end to your sin. And number two, that you bring into your lifestyle righteousness. You have 70 years to bring those two purposes about. And you might be here this morning and uh, all these things are just brand new to you and you know, you're just kind of showing up for church. But I want you to know, you've got 70 years and you can subtract where you are now to put an end to your sin. And you can't do that yourself, by yourself. You can only do that if you embrace the Messiah that Israel missed. You and you receive Him because only He can make atonement for your sin. But then for those of you who have made that decision, you've embraced the Messiah then you need to go on because the purposes have not been completed just with having forgiveness of sin. Far be it that the Gospel is only forgiveness of sin. The Gospel is new life in Christ. 
our hope of glory. And so my appeal to you is don't let the clock stop until you have tasted of the glory and the majesty and the graciousness and the forgiveness and the mercy and the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this most holy moment where we have been privileged to open up a most holy Word. What can compare to the Bible? I know of no book who is even worthy to be in the Bible's presence. What book tells us the future? What book can demonstrate the future to us in these marvelous ways? And yet, Lord, You've given us this book not just to know the future, but You've given us this book so we could live rightly in the present. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here this morning that You would encourage them that just as You meant business for Israel, You mean business for us. And You desire for us to accomplish no less than You desired for Your Son to accomplish. And that's to put an end to sin and to bring in righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to You to heed Your clock, to listen to Your Word, and to experience Your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.